I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. My guest today is Duncan Exley, and here's a stark warning from his recent book, The End of Aspiration. Living standards over the coming years are predicted to stagnate for middle-income households and to fall for those with low incomes. And in occupational terms, people born in the early 1980s are the first group since comparable records began in 1946 to be in lower status jobs than their parents were at the same age. Our children are now more likely to slide down the scale than to climb up. Duncan is a former director of the Equality Trust, a charity that seeks to address the economic inequalities in the UK. In his book, he examines not only the data that suggests the UK is becoming markedly less meritocratic, but also speaks to people whose own stories buck the trend, who came from non-privileged backgrounds but went on to have successful careers in professions such as the law, medicine, politics and the media. What can we learn from their stories? Duncan's own story is that he came from a small mining town in West Yorkshire, was the first in his family to attend university and went on to have the sort of professional job in London that meant that some regarded him as having joined the elite. That, as you'll hear, has given him a sharp awareness of all the factors that can get in the way of bettering your circumstances, barriers that those born to privilege don't even realise exist. And at the same time there are what Duncan memorably calls glass ladders, opportunities that are there for the taking, but you have to know they're there in the first place. And that usually means knowing people who can point them out to you. We also talk about tuition fees, inheritance tax, zero-hours contracts, and Brexit's likely impact. But when I met Duncan in a bookshop cafe a few weeks ago, just before another old Etonian came to power, I began by asking him about the kinds of people he'd wanted to interview, and what he hoped their stories would reveal. I was looking really for people who had achieved ideas above their station in in various careers. So I looked very much at the, the sorts of careers that often get discussed in the social mobility literature and especially in the government's thinking and rhetoric on social mobility. So the professions come up 
very highly. But I also wanted to look at politicians and at TV presenters and at billionaires and those people who, who are really at the, seem to be at the pinnacle of something. At the most, I was hoping for, are there any common factors I can find here between people's experience? Because I was very aware that people were stumbling around trying to find things. And was there something that bound these people together? And does that tell us anything about policymaking and practice that will help smooth others trying to go in the same direction? And were these people easy to find, hard to find, easy to persuade to talk to you, eager to talk to you? Surprisingly easy. I was told that it would be hard to find people willing to talk about their experiences, which were sometimes painful and sometimes embarrassing. But I found that those people are often so isolated within the privileged worlds in which they now had to inhabit that they were quite pleased to find someone who understood where they'd come from. It felt, I think in some cases, like a bit of therapy for them. And it was also reasonably easy to find people to talk to as well. With the help of a journalist, I started looking at the, the trade press, things like the Barrister magazine, for example. And I found that if you searched within those magazines, within those sites, for things that said the son of A or the daughter of A, those people, because they were the son of something as outrageous as a postman or a shipwright, were so unusual within those worlds as to be newsworthy and therefore it would be mentioned. That's already an indicator that that access to professions such as those is still highly restrictive. There are still barriers, maybe they're invisible barriers, or those invisible ladders, as you say, but they're still there. So do you have particular statistics that sort of, to you, suggest what, what the degree of the problem that this country faces in terms of of um, access of equality and, and therefore opportunity? Mm-hmm. What usually gets talked about in social mobility discourse and, and in politics is the chances of somebody, for instance, being the offspring of uh, blue-collar workers and going on to a white-collar job. But I increasingly found that that wasn't very useful. First of all, because I know quite a lot of people whose, especially where I come from, whose fathers worked in blue-collar trades down coal mines and who now work in coal centres and they've officially gone up in the world but they really don't feel that they have in terms of the respect that they get given in terms of the pay and security they have. I'm also very aware that those measures of social mobility and terms like social mobility don't mean very much to most people. I was talking to Justine Greening who was the education secretary and now runs the social mobility pledge herself. And she was saying that her mum, when, when Justine started talking to her about social mobility, thought she meant those scooters for people with disabilities. And it doesn't mean much to, her, to most people. What does mean a lot to people is those aspirations that most people have. A, a job that matches our expectations and our qualifications. A home we can call our own. The wherewithal to have a family. The ability to live a life more determined by your choices and your background. So it was those things that I started looking at. And it was those things that having, having as a country got used to the chances of having a better job than your parents, of ha- having more odds of home ownership than your parents, in the late 20th century, 
In the 21st century, we now have worse odds of doing those things. So it's not like there isn't social mobility, it's just that it's mainly downwards now. Can you say a little bit, Duncan, about the relationship between equality and social mobility as objectives? Because some people see there being a tension there, that social mobility perhaps focuses on a smaller, inevitably a smaller percentage of people, you know, rising up in the world, whereas equality is perhaps a, a broader and a more important objective to target. This was a question I really struggled with when I started writing the book, realising that social mobility absolutely can be something of a cop-out to say, well, this vanishingly small number of people from working-class backgrounds have got into Oxford and they're an example of something going good, whereas the vast majority of people are left no better off by that sort of thing. But on the other hand... It's also the case that most people in the country, working class or not, hold aspirations for themselves and their their children. To say to people, well, you're not going to get an opportunity until everyone can get an opportunity, doesn't go down very well with anyone I've spoken to from those sorts of backgrounds. Luckily, what seems to be the case from the, the factors that I looked at in the book, which are those conditions that most likely underlie individuals achieving social mobility are also the things that you want to be doing if you're going to reduce inequality as well. And it it struck me as odd that the left and the right were arguing amongst themselves about why you should do something when there was actually a lot of common ground on what you should do. So you selected your interviewees Did you begin to see common threads emerge when you started going into their experiences in detail? Because presumably that was the the aim of talking, to see if there were common pathways there that perhaps other people could learn from or build on. I did, and there were four key themes, I think, which underlay people experiencing social mobility. And when I found these cropping up in people's experiences, I then went to the academics and practitioners as well and to check out that these people weren't just complete outliers. The first of those was that although there's something of an archetype, if you like, of someone who has come from a very rough background and they've gone on to achieve great things, it was the case with the people I spoke to, that yes, they probably grew up with low incomes, but they grew up with stability of income and stability of housing tenure. And there's a great deal of evidence that if you don't grow up with those things, what it does to your mental bandwidth and what it does to your mindset really undermines your ability to pursue anything other than What's right in front of you? As somebody said to me, you, you can't reach for the stars when you're clinging on to what you've got. There's reason to be pessimistic on those grounds then, isn't there? Because of the increase in more people being forced to, um, to rent privately, and that brings insecurity with it, and with parents perhaps having zero-hours contracts or less job security, and therefore not being able to give children as much attention as they might otherwise want to. So the the sort of broader indicators there are sort of pointing in a in a negative direction, aren't they, for the kind of mobility we're talking about? Absolutely. And I think this rams home the idea of thinking about people's life chances and opportunities in a holistic way. 
because there are a lot of companies who will talk about their record on social mobility and how they are going out to more than just Oxford and Cambridge to recruit people. And they think it's a good idea. I, I, don't, I don't dispute that they want to be doing that. But at the same time, if they are putting their own employees on, as you say, zero-hours contracts, their employees' children are going to be growing up to be less well-equipped to pursue those opportunities. You also have a problem coming up with Brexit as well, that disruption is bad for people and Brexit will inevitably bring disruption. And that combined with the fact that our social security system has more holes in it now than it has done for a long time means that people are going to be finding it very difficult to adapt to change and that is going to be passed on to their children if all the evidence is anything to go on. You started out saying that stability was one of the common factors. Stability in their, in their um, family background was one of the factors. What others did you discover? Another one that came up very quickly is I noticed that a number of my interviewees said, you know, I had a posh friend, and that posh friend was, was pivotal in their stories. Quite often in letting them know that career opportunities even existed that they didn't know about. And then... Being what I call a slightly crap role model. A lot's talked about being an inspirational role model, but it helps if you know someone who's aspiring to something and they're not intimidatingly good. They're your friend, you know them, they're human. And being able to spend time with people is good for that and is also good for being able to tell you the protocols for being able to operate in more privileged society that are not written down. So... That's really about that we need to have interclass mixing to be able to enable people to do that. But again, that's, there's, a, there's a threat to that because we are increasingly seeing, you know, as a geographer Danny Dorling has said, increased social segregation. So your odds of meeting those people in school or outside of school are being reduced down as people are segregating themselves by class. And again and again that theme comes up, doesn't it, of really needing to understand the cultural codes and needing to understand how those echelons of society that people may be trying to gain access to, how they actually operate. And that's not something you're going to find written down because those are things which are sort of transmitted to people who are, who are the in-group almost without them realising it. But it to, to someone who's on the outside may be completely baffling. Oh, absolutely. There's, um, there's a section of one of the chapters in, in The End of Aspiration that's called Management Training for Children. It's talking about how those codes are brought home to people at your parents' dinner table sometimes. And I had a, an incident myself when I was newly arrived in London in a very early job and somebody said to me, well, oh, you'll have your game plan together then now. And I was thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. And they were talking about, well, you'll have identified which are the right people to get around, you'll have identified which are the right projects to get around. And for everything that I'd been told when I was growing up was that that was scheming and that was dishonest and two-faced. And I then get into these sorts of professions and these sorts of workplaces and I'm sort of punished for not doing those things that I was led to believe I would be punished for doing earlier on. 
we keep seeing the book sort of worlds that are self-replicating you know they their intake is very much like the people who are already there i think you talk about in city law firms partners are going to feel more comfortable with someone they can talk to about fine wine and opera and that's going to exclude most of the population irrespective of their academic achievements or their aptitude or their potential absolutely and as you say it does come up again and again and again people are judged supposedly on competence but actually in terms of all sorts of irrelevant things and again Justine Greening was talking about going through a recruitment procedure that involved a formal dinner and she was confronted with them with a menu in Italian and yeah, that an ability to speak Italian was not on the job description she was applying for, but it was expected that people would know what Linguini was. Now, a lot of these big firms would say they're making huge efforts to increase the diversity of their workforce, and they're looking much, much harder than they were 10 or 20 years ago. Is that hogwash, or are they trying their best, or is they, are they just not very good at it, or is there some gap to be bridged there, and how can it be bridged? If, you know, because if you go on their websites, they'll all be espousing very noble policies about the access to the professions. I think there is an awful lot of good intentions out there, and some of that good intentions is actually paying off. One of the things that I think is undermining it is that the people who are trying to do these things are themselves coming from quite privileged backgrounds and don't understand some things, (laughs) and don't even know that there's anything to understand. So... I have an example in the book of someone who turns down an opportunity because they were going to get paid in arrears, but a landlord wanted rent and deposit in advance. And people from privileged backgrounds will have encountered that at some point, but their parents would have paid it, and so they don't remember it, so they don't do anything about it. It's disappeared from their memory. It's too small for them to notice, but it's too big for other people to get over. So what I do think is very important is organisations like the civil service, companies like KPMG, some universities or other the student unions are now starting to have specific posts for inclusion officers or social mobility officers who can not only be someone who the people from similar backgrounds can feel like they can talk to and be understood, but also who can represent these things to the decision makers and say, here's a barrier that you can't even see. A lot of your interviewees were academic from early on and felt a little bit out of place in their original backgrounds. But they still experienced a sort of sense of alienation when they when they accessed some of these worlds of, you know, law or politics or, or medicine. It wasn't like they had sort of come home, as it were. They hadn't sort of found their... They, were, they, were sort of felt, they felt out of place in both worlds, which suggests that, you know, the, the, the worlds of the elite probably have to change in order to be more accommodating, because ideally you want people to access those worlds and feel at home and that they belong rather than they're always I think one of them described themselves as an anthropologist always having to try to work out what this culture was Absolutely and it's very notable that a lot of the people who I spoke to said that they felt like a misfit when they were growing up which sheds a light on something about the price of social mobility as well that people who who are happy at home among the people they're with in the worlds that they're with 
don't want to give up that in order to achieve the career, the education. There's really no reason why people should have to give that up, but it's often expected. So that narrows down a lot of the people who are given those opportunities to those who are willing to say goodbye to something. There are some things that are that I came across that were really heartbreaking of people going to university and thinking, I've always been the swatty one at school, I've always stood out, I've never felt at home, this is going to be the place where I can go and other people are going to want to read books all day and they're, and it's going to be just like me. And then finding they're not like the people you were with at home, but they're not like you either in a completely different way. And someone did say, I feel like a hybrid because you encounter people with a different sort of social capital, you encounter people with a different sort of capital capital, <laughs> and yet you, you feel like you are, you are very much in the minority, and you're sort of, you, a lot of them describe feelings of you know, struggling to, some, some people drop, drop out or take a long time to come to terms with it. Absolutely, and I think nobody didn't. I think pretty much everybody I came across said, I struggled with something, and that includes a lot of people who have, who look like they have an awful lot of self-confidence about them. There's somebody in there who, who is the chief executive of a very large company. There's someone who is a TV presenter. There's politicians. All of those people involve having a lot of brass neck. But all of them said, you have to fight your battles on this, and it is exhausting to try and do this. So Duncan, there's some nice metaphors, recurring metaphors in your book, and one of them is this notion of the toll, the toll road on the road to, to success. So t- tell me what, what, what those toll roads are today. Well, that's really about some things that are very obvious and well-known. For instance, unpaid internships. If you want to get into certain careers, you have to do an unpaid internship, you probably can't afford it, especially if it means living in London for nothing. But... There are so many others. One of those is that the price of uniforms and the price of equipment you're meant to bring along if you're going to uh, a school that's rated as outstanding is going to be higher than if you're going to a school that's not. And parents know that, and some parents are making decisions about where they can send their children based on where they can afford to send their children in a so-called free education system. And that builds up a lot because the people who are making those decisions don't really notice those costs and therefore don't do anything about those costs and they come up again and again and I was speaking to someone who was saying well I someone asked me why I didn't take part in any extracurricular activities at university well because I had a part-time job because I had to have because the getting away from the things about um, student tuition fees, the student maintenance grant, or loan as it is now, doesn't cover the living costs in an awful lot of cities. People have to work part-time. But if you don't, if your parents pay for things, as a lot of people do, one of my interviewees said, I'm the only one who pays their own bills in this accommodation. You can afford to fully participate in something. Therefore, you don't notice that there's a toll road to opportunity. Now, you mentioned tuition fees there in passing, and you say that 
during the two years that you were working on the book, when you told people what you were doing, the single most frequent comment was, well, tuition fees, get rid of tuition fees. That, that's the single biggest thing that can be done to improve equality of opportunity and people fulfilling their aspirations. And you disagree. Can you say sort of briefly why you disagree? I think tuition fees are an obvious thing to people who come from privileged backgrounds because they or their children will continue to pay them actually over quite a long time. And I think they are a barrier, but I think they are nowhere near as much of a barrier as the lack of maintenance funding that students get, which can stop them being able to access education in the first place. It's not about how much debt they have later in life, it's about whether they can afford to do it or whether, whether they can afford to enter university or whether they later on find out that they have to drop out. Those things are the things that are really a, a hard barrier to people accessing that in the first place. Did you also have people saying grammar schools, expand the grammar school sector because that's a great vector of aspiration? I did and I, I had great fun with that of people who, searching on Twitter for the phrase engines of social mobility and grammar schools and a lot of people said that and the evidence is nowhere near that the evidence is that if you come from not just a poor background but if you come from an average middle income background the odds are about four to one against your children getting in but it is seen as something that was an engine of social mobility because grammar schools happened to be around in the 50s and 60s when more people were getting white-collar jobs but coming from blue-collar backgrounds. But that was really just because those jobs were opening up rather than because they went to a particular sort of school. And, of course, that, that sort of ties in with something you mentioned earlier about the Brexit effect on the labour market. And in addition to that, there are all sorts of changes on the horizon. That we've, we've talked a little bit about zero-hours contracts, but even white-collar jobs are changing. And with the sort of revolution in AI that's, that's upon us, we've already got lots of graduates who are not getting graduate-level jobs. There are likely to be very stormy times ahead, aren't they? Absolutely. And I, th I think that quite often the way that social mobility or the opportunity to achieve our aspirations is talked about. It's often assumed that this is a problem for people from poor backgrounds, which is not a great way of talking about it, partly because no one thinks of themselves as poor. Even people who you maybe think of as poor don't think of themselves as poor because they know someone poorer than them. But also that all these barriers that I've been coming across of insecurity, of social segregation insurmountable costs, lack of jobs being created, are all affecting the people in the middle of the income spectrum as well. So the people in the middle of the income spectrum are the ones who are, on average, going down in the world rather than coming up in the world. And it's, it is too often assumed, I think, that a lack of opportunity affects other people. It doesn't. If you're a normal person, it really affects you. Let me ask you about some measures which seem to have worked because we've talked about a lot of problems but maybe sort of switching to towards possible you know positive directions that could be pursued you talked earlier about the crap role model but michelle obama <laughs> whom I, I guess we wouldn't call a crap role model but she had a 
an amazing energizing effect on a, on a London girls' school that she visited. Can you say what you think the effect was due to? Was there more to it than simply having an inspirational speaker stand up in front of a, of a cohort of girls? Yeah. Yes, that was Elizabeth Garrett Anderson School, which is not far from King's Cross in London. Partly, I think what she was doing was, was saying, I am someone like you saying what sort of background she came from, which was actually fairly similar to what a lot of the girls in the all-girls school were coming from. Immigration, sometimes refugee. And it was someone like them who could do something to say, yes, someone like you, me for instance, can do this thing. But it was also not just having that inspiring speech, but also taking them through the route to it, and saying, well, let's not just talk about I came from this background and now I'm the first lady and I'm in the White House. What are the steps to those things? So she took them along to uh, an Oxford University Open Day. She started putting in place things that would allow them to see those, those places along the route. And that's really important that quite often if you inspire people to something... That's great, but unless you show them that this is somewhere that they could realistically get to and give them some idea about how you get there, as an awful lot of the routes to opportunity really aren't signposted. I've worked for most of my career in the voluntary sector and charities. It took me till I was in my early 20s to find out it was possible to have a paid career in the voluntary sector because the name sort of implies you can't. And if those opportunities aren't visible, you absolutely can't going to take them. That ties in with another thing that there's a, there's a recurring theme in the book, which is the desperate shortage of good careers advice, of good... You talked about the importance earlier of sort of informal mentoring, which people with privileged backgrounds tend to have because of family or other connections. But the lack of provision of good careers guidance, of good advice on choosing the right course or the right university. That seems to be something that really besets the whole system. Yes, and I think if I was going to spend money on any one thing that could help people achieve the aspirations that they're apt for rather than that they're born for, it would be about giving us a proper career support service. What struck me writing the book is that the amount of careers advice support I'd had throughout my entire education until I was in my early 20s would have fitted very comfortably into an afternoon. If you're planning a project, anyone who's planned a project know that you spend a lot of the total project time in scoping and planning. So why is this sort of decades-long project of my career had a couple of hours of scoping? It's ridiculous. And what tends to happen is that because our career's advice is so poor, even David Willits, the former universities minister, said it's probably our worst policy failure as a country, not just his government, but along the line. If it's not good, then it tends to get outsourced to your your friends and your family. There's a line from Bruce Springsteen, they teach you how to do like your daddy done. And that's 
exactly what it does because you're getting advice from people who know what they know. And if you're and if your daddy's a barrister, <laughs> that's where you're going to go. If you're but if your daddy ain't, then you're not even going to know that it exists. Now, going back again to some positives. 20 years ago, London schools were among the, the, the worst performers in the country, and now they're among the best performers in the country. What is that attributable to? And do you think it can be rolled out more widely? I think a lot of that is about the sheer political will. And this is where having people who, who have come from the right background not as a term the right background is normally used, actually matter. That you actually got in the 1990s, the 2000s, a Labour government in power, which isn't in itself what was important. What was important is Labour ministers find it rather embarrassing to send their children to private schools. So they had to send them to state schools. And then they knew what was happening. And they'd known what was happening when they were in opposition as well. So this is something that is well known within the political discourse at that point, because they are suffering it and they were suffering the poor state of the schools in London at the time. And they and their friends needed something done about it. And so that created some money being pushed in, but it also created some political will to really up the standards in London schools. And then that created a, a snowball effect that once the standards improved, more middle-class children started coming into those schools. You get more sharp-elbowed parents coming, coming in, and that has a self-sustaining effect. Do you agree that the, the right has got a particular kind of rhetorical grip on a lot of the debate? I find the phrase the politics of envy quite a pernicious phrase because it's, it's instrumentalised so cleverly to, um, to justify a lot of inequality. And you talk in the book about things like inheritance tax being portrayed as an outrage. And that's, a, that's an idea which gains acceptance from people who will probably never you know, be beneficiaries of a, of a favourable policy towards people who inherit. Is that a problem, do you think, that the discourse seems to be quite fixed in a lot of ways in favour of the status quo? Absolutely. And to some extent, it's to do with an awful lot of people having conflicting values. Pretty much everybody will say, yes, somebody from whatever background should be able to go and do whatever they want. But we'll also say that if you inherit some money, you ought to be able to keep as much of it as you like. (laughs) And wealth buys you chances to try again and again and again until you succeed. And everybody pretty much knows that, but they choose not to think about them at the same time. It's also a result of people not really understanding that you have, at the moment, a situation whereby the top 10% pay a smaller proportion of their incomes in tax than the bottom 10% do because there's, a, there's an over-focus on income tax. Whereas if you're on a low income, you, you don't think so much about income tax, but you do think about council tax, you think about VAT. And those sorts of things skew the discourse, because, again, they are discourses that are being had by people who come from privileged backgrounds for whom income tax is a very noticeable thing, and council tax isn't, really. And again, that's a, that's a theme of the book, isn't it? That those who are most privileged don't even notice what it's like not to have had those same advantages they've had you know and we're talking 
in a period where it looks like another old Etonian is probably going to be our next prime minister. And how do you think that sort of perceptual shift can come about? Does that, does that have to be sort of through the leverage of, of legislation to, to change things pragmatically? Or do you think there is a, are there sort of soft policy objectives as well as, as hard policy objectives in order to try and even things up a bit? I think an awful lot of this is, as, as well as the things that are quite hard policies to do, of using something like inheritance tax to give people what I would call an opportunity fund so that everyone starts out with, what, 10,000 or so when they come of age to be able to get a car to go to work if they live in a rural area or to be able to move to a new city or whatever it is. I think that sort of thing needs needs doing and I think that is to do with framing things as well of you're talking about an opportunity fund, you're not talking about inheritance tax because talking about inheritance tax makes you think about what it costs. An opportunity fund is about what you get. So there is that, but there are also things you can do which are not nearly so costly about who is in a position that they can advise on policy making, who will understand these sorts of things. And one of the things that was noticeable again and again and again writing this book is somebody would say to me something of, oh, if only such and such a thing had happened, that would have helped to reveal a lot. And I thought, oh, but that's quite obvious. And no one's done it. And no one's done it because the people who are in charge of these sorts of things haven't encountered it. You mentioned better careers guidance as a, as a key thing that you would sort of put at the, at the top of your list or near the top of your list of, of recommendations. What, what, what others are right at the top of that, of that list? And do all of them have a hefty price tag or are some of them things which don't necessarily cost a huge amount of money? I think a lot of those things are are basically responses to those four key themes. So the thing about insecurity is about some things with a price tag. So you're, you're talking about a decent social security system, which isn't actually all that expensive because most social security is pensions. And it's about making it more supportive, much more than it is about making it higher. But also security could be improved by bringing tenants' rights in this country up to the standard that they are in most civilised Western countries so that people are not likely to be thrown out of their homes at a moment's notice. There are things to do with desegregation as well. And I think that obviously has things to do with not having grammar schools, but also to do with in higher education institutions, where we have different courses for vocational and for academic courses in different institutions, I don't know. And actually why we have vocational and academic in different courses, I don't really know either, because everyone's job that I've ever met includes some technical hands-on things you have to do and includes some theoretical knowledge you have to do. So it seems to me entirely a product of snobbery that there are universities and vocational colleges. If you merged all those into one, not only would people be learning a rounded set of skills and knowledge that they need, but also people would be able to meet a broader range of people and understand a broader range of society and aspirations. 
I was talking to Duncan Exley about his book, The End of Aspiration, Social Mobility and Our Children's Fading Prospects, which is available now in paperback from Bristol University Press under their Policy Press imprint. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find more than 50 others in the series at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.